Welcome to Afterthoughts, everybody, the podcast where we discuss a movie in depth that we watched this week. Um, with me, as always, is the uh, the usual crew, uh, John Garcia. How's it going? I'm very excited for this. I made some fresh coffee. Damn good coffee. Okay, good to hear. Uh, Ryan King, how you doing? Good. I, I'm glad to be here, too, because I, I was in a dream, and I was here in this dream. You know, so I'm glad to be here, even though there's a scary face that's controlling all of this in the distance. Oh, oh, interesting. <laughs> I had a dream that I was you, but I looked like me. And then, yeah, it, yeah <laughs> yes. it's something similar, very similar. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> uh, cool. So if you have picked up on these <laughs> hints here, uh, listener, we are discussing uh, quite a doozy of a film this week. We are attempting to talk about the uh, one of the premier cinematic masterworks of the 21st century, David Lynch's Mulholland Drive. I can't believe it. I'm just so excited to be here. I'm in this dream place. This one comes highly recommended. Dream place? What are you doing? Get out of the car. The girl is still missing. What's wrong? I just don't know who I am. I wonder where you were going. Mulholland Drive. Come on, it'll be just like in the movies. We'll pretend to be someone else. Silencio. This is all. I want to know who you are, don't you? Where's this going? Drive. It's been a very strange day. I'm getting stranger. So, Mulholland Drive is, it's really hard to give a plot synopsis for this movie. <laughs> like, um, on the one hand, you have uh, Betty, played by Naomi Watts, who is a young woman who has arrived in Los Angeles, hoping to make her big break as a Hollywood star. And she goes to stay at her aunt's apartment, who is out of town, and she is ready to go and start auditioning and uh, trying to make her, her imprint on Hollywood. Um, when she arrives at her aunt's place, there is a naked woman in the shower, and for some reason, she is not alarmed by this and just assumes that her aunt had a friend <laughs> staying there and forgot to tell her about it. Uh, she quickly discovers that this woman is amnesiac and has been in a car accident, and they embark on a mystery in, or you know a detective story in order to solve the mystery and figure out who this woman is. At the same time, we have director adam kesher played by justin thoreau who is making a movie and there are lots of weird shadowy figures behind the scenes of this movie intimidating italian producers who are dead set on having certain people cast in the film and don't want adam to you know have full creative control over what he's making um these are kind of very separate plots that really only come together toward the end of the movie if you know anything about Mulholland Drive, you're probably aware that it was originally designed as a TV pilot. David Lynch made it as a TV pilot, 
gave it to ABC. They hated it. Um, supposedly, the executive in charge watched it at six in the morning while making phone calls and not really paying attention. And he was like, yeah, this sucks. Um, so Lynch, um, you know, was trying to figure out what to do from there, ended up talking with uh, Studio Canal, the French distributor, and they decided, hey, maybe we can make this into a movie. A year and a half later, after the pilot was finished, they shoot the rest of the movie and put it together all into one crazy fever dream and you know you can see it kind of the places where this would have been really cool as a show where you have all of these characters there's so many characters in this movie that all could have had really interesting storylines like robert forster is in this movie for one scene and never comes back he has <laughs> yes. like one line you're like holy shit robert forster and then he never comes back um you know i'm sure that that character would have been fairly prominent in the series if they had um, you know, been able to do this longer. You know, like Kyle MacLachlan isn't in the Twin Peaks pilot that much, right? And then mm -hmm. he's the main character from there. So it would have been really interesting to see where this would have gone as a television show. But uh, it's a fucking fantastic movie. Like, it's, it's amazing how, you know, you have these threads that don't go anywhere, but it's fine because, you know, with David Lynch, there's always just weird dream logic and stuff that doesn't make sense and you're not really sure why but it's just fascinating and you're drawn into it and the weirdness and the confusion is kind of the point to a certain degree um you know there's this weird cowboy character that just kind of comes and goes there's all all this kind of crazy stuff in this movie that is just fascinating one of the reasons i love david lynch movies he's one of my favorite directors and his movies like you can't look away from them because they're so they're so weird but they're all they're like slightly off from normal and you're not really sure what's wrong necessarily at any given moment you're like there's something weird about this it just feels wrong and i don't know why and you, you kind of just have to keep watching there are definitely parts where it gets much weirder than that but a lot of david you know the bulk of david lynch movies like this is just strange and i'm not sure why i feel um you know off put to some degree by by what i'm seeing um i, I think this movie's incredible it's it's such a crazy weird dream logic movie and i think there are lots of different ways that you can interpret it as to what it's trying to say but um i'm really excited to hear what john thinks about this movie because john has just seen it for the first time and is, is not as familiar with with david lynch um so john i know that you've seen Eraserhead and the first season of twin peaks but how was your experience watching mulholland drive for the first time um it is exactly like a dream like uh it was one of those I was uncomfortable for a majority of the movie on like a subconscious level. And it, it's going out of that movie. Um, Sasha and I had, cause Sasha watched it with me. I initially tricked her accidentally. I thought it had Kyle McLaughlin in it. I was thinking of blue velvet. <laughs> I'm sorry, Sasha. Bet, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it did not. Um, but as we watched it, we both were kind of like, okay, okay, wait, what, where, huh? What, who is this? Okay. That person. And that like mixture as we went, I think when it was over, I described it, um, trying to use comparative terms of like what I've seen elsewhere. I was like, this felt to me like if you took M night Shyamalan Coen brothers and Quentin Tarantino, and you made a movie and then you applied like a, a broad brush stroke to like blend some of the sequences together, um, mm. because it just has like really funny scenes and then oh, yeah. other scenes that are really fucking dark. And then 
other things that have that of that's where the Shyamalan comes in where like the the dialogue is really cheesy and like has this intentionally forced kind of weirdness to it and it, it's one of those things where it mixes so well that you feel at least for me I felt uncomfortable watching it trying to figure out what was going on on multiple levels and when I came out of it my brain was just like in this frenzied state like when you wake up from a dream and you're like wait I was at like in this dream, I was at the store and I saw the clerk behind the counter had Dixon's face, but it wasn't (laughs) Dixon and like this other thing. And then you start to piece more and more of that kind of dream together. The movie itself like fell into place for me after I watched it. But during I was like, I don't know what I don't know what's happening. I just need to let it happen and my brain will catch up. And I like trust that. Um, And I I really loved one of the things I like noticed so much of was uh, using like just full frame um, shots of actors' faces for like the expressions, uh, like the the depth you can see in their eyes. Um, it kind of reminded me of of watching like a Sergio Leone film because uh, <laughs> there's a certain processing that you're watching happen. Um, but then other times, you know, you would get uh, the the same kind of score that you get in Twin Peaks, like that same um, sort of uh, soap opera vibe to it. And then at other times it would just completely draw you in. Like it's one of those things where um, the acting too, like at times it would just snap into like, oh no, David Lynch could totally do this kind of scene if he wanted to, but he's everything else he's doing, he's doing intentionally and mixing, mixing genres in a meta way. So yeah, like I loved it. I had a fantastic time with it. It took me, you know, two days to come to that conclusion because (laughs) I had to think about it a lot. Um, But I would say like Sasha and I are still, talking about it a few days later and that's the sign of something that uh i think is really magical um and we're not like snickering at it we're both just like oh my god like did this scene also mean this thing we're remembering more and more of it it's just burned into my my mind like i don't know it's one of those things where when we saw pig forever Mm -hmm. ago i got home and i like wrote everything that happened in pig on a piece of paper and i'm fairly certain i can do the same from a holland drive um because it was just so striking so those are those are my initial takes from it and and uh yeah i just really had a fucking good time nice i'm excited for the rest of my my lynch education (laughs) (laughs) ryan what did you think yeah this is my second time watching mulholland drive um the first time was back in college and i feel like this is gonna age me i had a a roommate that would buy like whatever dvds were on sale at best buy (laughs) which is like everything (laughs) and he had gotten this and he he had thought it was really awesome and I watched it and yeah at the time I don't think I really knew yeah I really didn't know much about Lynch and I didn't really put it together later I went on to like purposely watch Lynch stuff so like Eraserhead and Blue Velvet and um, I watched some of Twin Peaks when it was on the air but kind of didn't like get it because it was I would catch like an episode here or there and fuck oh yeah no that doesn't work exactly you, going yeah. On. yeah you gotta watch not that watching it through. Not that watching it in order makes it all make sense either, but no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so back then I kind of just did get the like let it wash over me kind of sense of it. This time I was going in like one, knowing it was a TV pilot, so I was kind of looking for like the seams. Um, and there's a couple interesting things there because of like how it differs from Lynch's other movies in how it's shot. Um Versus like Twin Peaks and somewhat Eraserhead. And then knowing kind of what all happens, looking back at the like 
I don't know if it's clues, but the like connection points between the different storylines. Kind of like all the stuff at the beginning of the movie that's just like fucking what before you even get to the like open, <laughs> so to speak. <laughs> um, I'm like, oh, it all relates to stuff later in the movie. And now I I know that. So I'm like looking at it more. Um, so, yeah, kind of getting a more of a, a broad appreciation for it this time. I like Lynch's stuff because it's weird. Um, I think he does capture this dream surreal quality so perfectly that can't be mimicked by anybody else and can't be quite the same thing like it's david lynch's dreams it's not (laughs) a style you can copy i like the concept that he has of like he makes it it isn't necessarily even supposed to be coherent it's supposed to be these themes and feelings and that's what he's trying to get across um I don't know if he even has anything in his head. He sort of acts like he has no idea in his own head what it is. Like, he just puts it out. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if that's an act or reality with Lynch. Yeah, again, who knows? Leave left to your own interpretation. So I I do like that these are, yeah, like you're saying, John, you can kind of sit down and just keep thinking about Lynch stuff again and again. Um, And it, you know, certainly with Twin Peaks just created, like, all of this online conversations over the years of like, well, what's this? What's this? How does this connect? Right. And so, yeah, he does kind of just create that sense. Um, and yeah, I, I like, I don't know. I kind of like the feeling of being in this like other dream, other thought, trying to kind of like understand and figure out what's going on. Yeah. Um, it, it reminds me of like, uh, we were having a conversation the other day, Dixon, about uh, showing up and uh, Jim Jarmusch and like all of slow cinema and how there's a certain way that you have to prepare yourself for it, um, depending upon, you know, what kind of Dave had and those kinds of things. And like, I, I think that like David Lynch is probably the key to me enjoying more slow cinema because he he just knows how to tap into a subconscious layer of your brain that says, hey, you're never going to be able to reconcile anything. <laughs> 100% within this and like most movies when you get out of it you search for like the immediate meaning or there are metaphors to pick up on and there's an overarching theme and it's you know all the subtext is can be uh picked up on and assembled and then you're like that's what that was um but it feels like with Lynch he he actively well maybe he doesn't actively fight you but just his content is um the contents of his film are the dream contents that like fight your logic. Like you can never really make full sense and put the pieces together. And like, as much as I think I figured most of this movie out, I'm fairly certain I'm wrong in so many regards. And at the other, at the same time, it doesn't matter. Um, and it, it forces me to embrace that. And I'm like, Oh, I like that. I like that a lot more than when I go to see something like, like showing up and I'm not in that mood and I'm like, I don't, I, I can't make any sense of some of the stuff that's going on in here. And it's not surreal enough to put me out of trying to, to la- rationalize and logic it. Um, so it just frustrates me a little more. I'm like, okay, maybe I just, uh, maybe Lynch is like my mushrooms. Basically. I just, <laughs> I take a Lynch film before I go see anything else. And, and then I can't be mad. <laughs> it just actively melted my brain for something. It's interesting. You say like slow, cinema though because any like any scene in something lynch makes is entertaining in of itself and Mm -hmm. you kind of get drawn into those moments even if it's like things that never come back characters that only appear for this one scene and it seems to have no idea but in that scene 
I think you're always like enough caught up in it. To me, it's like when you turn on a soap opera, you know, it's been going on for years. You have no fucking clue what's going on. But in that one scene, like because of the acting, even though it's still to dialogue, you're like, okay, well, why? Why are they fighting? What are they fighting about? And then just about the time you think you figure that out, it cuts to like a gorilla attacking a wedding. And you're like, what the fuck is this? <laughs> yes. Right? <laughs> yes. Yeah, John, are you saying that Lynch is slow cinema or that he gives like the mindset that you have from watching his film can help you watch slow cinema? Because I wouldn't describe Lynch as slow cinema. He's not slow cinema. No, no, no. He's not slow cinema. And I'm not saying that he is. I'm saying he's the key to understanding slow cinema because Lynch... I know he's, uh, there's a lot of people who've talked about, I've seen like some celebrities talk about meeting Lynch and working with him and how he usually invites them. I think Michael Sarah meditated with David Lynch. Um, <laughs> yeah. when he came back to be in twin, when he was hired to be in twin peaks, Lynch was like, why don't you come out to my place and we'll meditate. And like, that's just what they did for a day. And I think that, that that's kind of representative of what Lynch does as a whole for his films for me anyway is, uh, and I haven't experienced the rest of them, but like from Eraserhead and from this and Twin Peaks, there's a certain kind of living in the moment of each scene that he captures that transcends some of the other kinds of movies I've seen where it's harder for me to live in those moments in, in Hmm. slow cinema. And like, um, I don't know, it just, it frees you in a way. It's like, that's why I said, it's kind of like my mushrooms. Like you take mushrooms to break down some of your psychological barriers to let you figure out how to think in a different headspace. Same reason plenty of mind altering substances are used. Um, and I think that Lynch is uh, like a, a film incarnate version of that. Like he, he captures it for me, um, in a way that like, yeah, I can't rationalize about it. And so my brain just accepts it and then I can watch anything after and I would be fine. Like I would enjoy it or have a different perspective on it, which I don't think that I can say that about a lot of other directors. Like I watch a Tarantino film and I'm going to want to watch more Tarantino films. I would want that same style for any other movie that follows for a little while until it runs off. But with Lynch, I feel like it could unblock me for some other Hmm. movies. Interesting. I mean, his, his movies have such a unique vibe to them that like no, nobody else can do like, like Ryan, you were talking about his movies feel like dreams in such visceral ways that really no, no other director can match that. And it's like they they're like dreams but they're they're more like nightmares to a certain degree like especially a racer head but like he's yeah, like he yeah. uses that dream like feel and that nightmarish quality to kind of talk about different types of relationships and different aspects in society in his films like you know a racer head about parenting and um like a lost highway about marriage and and different things like that and i i love how he uses that in Mahal and drive to kind of talk about LA and the movie industry as a whole and kind of how fucked up it is and how kind of corrupt the the system is and how um you know it chews up and spits out young actresses that come out like looking to make a, a life for themselves and you know even um handicapping directors and keeping them from making the the work that they want to and it's obviously obviously something that Lynch is very familiar with and um you know I, I think it's just a, a fascinating movie and exploring those ideas i think a good like to me what stands out of a scene you could show because it has relatively little context even within the movie <laughs> is that the two guys sitting at the not denny's um oh, talking the about the, the, the yeah winkies. the winkies yeah, yeah i love that scene talking about the dream because once it, it gets to that like tenseness 
because the, the one guy's like, oh, I had a dream here and you were standing over there and you were afraid. And then that made me afraid. Uh, and then there was this like thing out back. And then the guy gets up and goes over to where he was standing. And you get that sort of like deja vu, like what is going on feeling. And you can see the character start to like also kind of freak out of like what is really happening. And then they have this slow walk outside of the place, like to the back towards the back. And you have that same anticipation the characters do of like anything could happen mm-hmm. like this. Yeah. It could just be like, yeah, hey, this is a dream, man. Fuck off. And then we leave or it could be horrifying or it could be like i I have no idea like and i think that one exemplifies the kind of just like i have no idea what's going on here and the characters also kind of have that feeling and just is like yeah you're you're just in the dream in the moment yeah yeah and that's a fascinating scene too because it like it almost has no connection to the rest of the movie but it also kind of has every connection to the rest of the movie and (laughs) it's it's so hard to know exactly what they're trying to say with that like why is the source of evil like a hobo hiding behind the dumpster at a, a you know denny's knockoff <laughs> yeah um, <laughs> but it's just fascinating you know and like that ends up being the location where um you know diane ends up putting the hit on camilla and you know so it's like it feels like maybe that like that is the the point of no return maybe where she has kind of gone you know, past, uh, you know, the point of being able to save herself, but I don't know, like it's all, it's all so wild and so hard to, to tie all these threads together. Yeah. Um, well, I, I really want to talk about kind of the casting choices made here. Yeah, let's do it. Um, specifically, uh, you know, Naomi, Naomi Watts, I haven't seen her in a whole lot that I can remember aside from Birdman and this, Uh, I'm sure there are other movies that I could name, but those are the ones she stands out to. Uh, and this is like her breakout role, right? Or something. Yeah. Is that... Her first big, uh, big performance. There you go. She plays, she's been cast perfectly as, you know, bright eyed, uh, girl new to Hollywood about to learn all about the CD underbelly. And then we have, uh, Laura Herring. That's her name. I always, I've been trying to remember it because I don't know, Ryan, if you picked up on it, but she's, uh, John Travolta's wife in the Punisher 2004. Uh, <laughs> so obviously, uh, there was a, another layer to this movie for me where I was like, I recognize her and not in a dream logic way. Um, Ryan, remind me to really try to pick movies that John can't draw don't in connections involve to Punisher 2004. Punisher, yeah. Yeah. Good mm. luck. It's so hard. Gonna, I know. Yeah. How, how many degrees separated are all of Lynch's films? Oh, <laughs> Um, but yeah, like, uh, they are, they play two, two roles. They play, uh, each like Naomi Watts is, you know, the bright eyed, um, kind of new to Hollywood and also the embittered, like second fiddle, uh, while Laura Herring plays technically the same character. I'm fairly certain that's what it is. She mm-hmm. has amnesia and is like our amnesiac woman. Um, but she's also, they also like have another actor who stands in for her in a different sequence, if I'm not mistaken, right? Like there's it's like an audition yeah. where they there's bring in two a... Camillas. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So like the two Camillas really throws you off. So there's kind of that, that's where like more dream logic comes in for me. And it's something I've never really thought about, but it makes like perfect sense to conceal a mystery. Um, why not instead of trying to uh, hire or like put a bunch of makeup on an actor 
just have them and like have them play. You know, think about like Cloud Atlas. Oh god, uh, <laughs> I try not to. Yeah, yeah. I know. Or uh, you know, uh, from from the bad films, um, The Room, where they just recast Peter the Psychologist. Um, they don't do it for the the intention of making it surreal and dreamlike. It's because the dude left the the fucking set. Um, but here you're using the same actors in different roles to muddle part of what's going on and to like create, I feel like this dream vibe and these two timelines and that they're representative of, of two halves of archetypes potentially. I mean, Naomi Watts for sure is two halves of the same coin um, being embittered after coming to Hollywood and not making it and coming to Hollywood and being fresh faced and like ready for mm -hmm. anything. Um, so I, I'm kind of curious how, uh, cause I've talked about my first experience with it, but like, what was y'all's when you watched it? I, Ryan, you had it wash over you, but what did y'all think about this particular aspect of Lynch's uh, decisions? You, sorry, what are you asking? What was my first like, experience watching the movie or what do I think about him? Uh, I mean, when you come out of it and, and you, is this like the first movie that you have seen where two actors are, are cast in two roles and they just blatantly don't try to cover that up. And uh, like, usually they use makeup in other movies or they'll try to make it, you know, mysterious. I think about like Jallos too, where, oh, the killer was always clad in black. And hidden. Like, yeah. Yeah. But here it's like just out in the, the open. Hand. They don't even, the movie does not give a shit. Uh, it's just like, yeah, Naomi Watts is two characters. What about it? And we don't really change Naomi Watts's look too much. Like we muss her hair. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I feel like I've seen that before, but I couldn't like pinpoint where I've seen it. I, I will say that Lynch is pulling a lot from Persona in this, Ingmar Bergman's film, John and I are actually seeing tomorrow. Um, but it is kind of about like two women who kind of lose their identity in each other and kind of start becoming the same person. And like you see that a lot in the first two acts of the film with Naomi Watts and Laura Herring is like their characters start becoming more similar and you know, to the point where like there she's wearing a wig to look like Naomi Watts's hair. And um, I think all that is is really interesting. And, and the way that he's he's playing with, you know, kind of changing characters names and things like that, I think, you know, just adds to the dreamlike quality of it. I, I think it also like it makes you question like, wait a minute, is the first half a dream and the or, and like the first two acts are dream, and the third act is reality or is the third act a, a dream and the rest of it is real or is it some kind of weird combination to the two of the two and it's kind of hard to parse that out and and determine what's going on there and it kind of adds to the mystery yeah i can think of movies where there's like uh not well time travel but um, like oh, michael yeah. j fox just being recast as himself and this is his own <laughs> relatives in a creepy <laughs> way but um like where there's different generations that are shown, but it's the same person or there's some kind of like reincarnation. Oh yeah. You mean like the Natty professor? To <laughs> <laughs> High art. Yeah. And, you, and, and you're right. Like cloud Atlas kind of has both of those where you have like the drastic time differences and the re like reincarnation, I guess, concept there. Um, but yeah, this where it's, I, I think it, it makes it, at least clear that there's some kind of there's this parallel between these two storylines in some way, especially with the like flip flop almost that the characters take from one state to the other of like which one's kind of the more in charge and which one's, you know, more. Yeah. And, and the kind of the change there as well, like who's who's the one that's getting the parts and 
right and who's the one that's not um so yeah i think it it does make sense the the interesting thing is trying to figure out yeah like why is there a different camilla in that one part and i think that you know if you give to the theory of like uh it's in I want to say Betty for for Naomi Watts for everything. Yeah, <laughs> but, uh, that's her name for most of the movie. <laughs> yeah, Diane, I guess, is her name. And the other, that it's like in Diane's head. So she's recontextualizing all these events in, in some way. And so then she is not seeing it as the same person then. Like that Camilla is some other thing or something. I don't know. I thought it was like a code word at a certain point too. Like you can hear hear Camilla and you say, that's the one. And it's, you know, that's, I mean, I was like, all right, sure. Um, But yeah, I was especially confused because I kind of like, I had looked up the IMDb beforehand and I was like, oh, they play like two characters, whatever. And I just was like, all right, Hmm. fine. And then uh, when I watched it, I was like, wait, that's not Camilla. That she doesn't look anything like John Travolta's wife in the Punisher. I don't understand. (laughs) (laughs) Um. But yeah, like, I guess what I was kind of getting at is in other movies, I feel like they go to a great length to make sure that you know which actor is playing which character. Like, oh, there's sure. always a line of like, I'm you from the future. Or, uh, you know, the, the, they're definitely making sure that, you know, they're a relative, um, trying to distance them in any way they can in the writing. And here it, it doesn't attempt to everybody. Yeah. That's like the usual Lynch stuff for me is everybody accepts everything at a certain face value. And it's just kind of like the old woman who comes to the door and is like, somebody's in danger. And she's just like frantically trying to mm-hmm. talk to look past Betty and figure out who is in there. And like the landlady just comes out and is like, oh, it's just her. She does this sometimes. And I was <laughs> like, what? Oh, what? <laughs> How? Um, yeah. At or, least she's not a prize fighting kangaroo. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that was, would believe what what he did to that courtyard. I want to know. <laughs> <laughs> that was, yeah, that was my other thing was just like, this dude had a prize fighting kangaroo. Holy <laughs> shit. Where's this movie? <laughs> yeah. I love the random throwaway lines like that, that Lynch just puts in, in his movies. And you're like, what the fuck is that? And you, you just laugh your ass off and then they move on. <laughs> That's that lends even more dream quality to it. Um, yeah. Or like how absurdly over the top some of it goes from like, uh, I don't know about a dream quality, but can we talk about the Hitman? Um, yes, we sequence? can. <laughs> oh, the, the, <laughs> yeah, guy, the guy that was who, your Coen brothers thing, right? That, was right. Exactly that, that was is my thinking. Coen brothers piece. Um, that's also how I play like any video game, like Grand Theft Auto, where I'm like, shit, I committed a crime. Nobody can know. <laughs> it just keeps escalating. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Yeah. Um, Something bit me bad. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah. Um, that scene comes after. Is it after the diner or like I don't even remember now because it's all it's, jumbled it's up. It's definitely after the Winkies scene. I, it, yeah. It's a lot of the first two acts of the movie. They can kind of happen in any order. Like it yeah. doesn't necessarily have to have occurred before or after something else. But, but. it's like you there's at least some attachment to a few other characters i feel like we're probably seeing naomi watts at that point we're like following along and then it suddenly just cuts to two dudes hanging out in a room and they're just talking and one of them's like yep this is the black book that contains the history of the world and the other guy's (laughs) like cool and then just shoots him in the head you're like holy fuck like there's just actively that violence watching this hitman try to plant a gun on the body and accidentally shoot through a wall (laughs) (laughs) while he's rubbing his fingerprints off the trigger oh my god and yeah sasha and i were just so dumbfounded like how incompetent that guy was (laughs) was, 
Um, I, I don't even know how you get that kind of that sense of humor that David Lynch has in some of those sequences. I'm just like, fuck, man, that's great. It's fucking brilliant. <laughs> I always time. forget how funny this movie is when I come back to it. I've seen it four or five times now. And like, I always remember like, oh, wow, this movie's super trippy and weird and like a dreamlike space. And then I, I forget like how much I'm laughing during the movie every time I watch it. Yeah. Um, that, that style too, like, cause there's, there's the hitman. There's a few intimidating characters in this. The hitman's not really one of them. He's, <laughs> yeah, no. he's hilarious. Uh, that guy is really funny at what he does and how poor of a job he can do. But then there's like the cowboy that <laughs> comes out of nowhere. Love the cowboy. <laughs> after, uh, after Justin Theroux, like smashes the windshield of the Italian cinema producers, and like runs away, which I was like, man, the dude just carries a golf club everywhere. It's like a cane. It's like a Bob Hope thing. Yeah. I, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Uh, he has like a whole, there's a whole subplot of his character just having a bad day. Mm. Um, yeah. <laughs> where he gets told who he's going to cast. He gets pissed off, smashes the windshield, drives home, finds his wife cheating with Billy Ray Cyrus, the pool <laughs> <Yeah>. boy. <laughs> that scene is so good. I love how like the... Billy Ray Cyrus is like the calm, rational one in that as like the pool man who's fucking uh, Thoreau's wife. And like is, the wife's going crazy and Billy Ray Cyrus turns around and he goes, she's he's probably upset, Lorraine. Yeah. <laughs> he's so cool I, and empathetic. Yeah. yeah. I, hey, man, I you love... don't talk to your wife like that. I don't care what she's done. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, I like how he goes and gets like he's just calm and collected and like gets the jewelry walks out gets the paint it's the same sort of thing where you're just watching you're like what the fuck is where's he going with this and he just pours it in the jewelry just fucking mucks it up i'm like how did he think of that in the moment i know yeah it's such like a, a random act of retaliation spiteful toddler who i like to think that he always knew he was gonna have to do that at some point it's like the moment we get a pool boy a i have a contingency plan i will paint all of her jewelry <laughs> yeah i saw an interview with the production designer and he said that the owners of the house were worried about the paint getting everywhere and so they had to cover the entire kitchen in like a clear laminate and you can't it doesn't show up on screen but like everything is is covered in like plastic basically so paint didn't get all over their precious kitchen oh my gosh the the fact that he just keeps justin thoreau's character just keeps going adam is just like doing that and then he's trying to pick a fight and then he gets fucking thrown out on his ass and goes li goes to live at like a hotel and that's where cookies know, we, yeah the cookies <laughs> that's where we get like the um the guy who comes to like see him and is like oh these two guys came and looked for you there's a lot of there's a few moments where people are like so and so was looking for you and you never see that scene mm -hmm. and and i'm guessing that that's kind of i don't know if that's exactly from like what the tv pilot would have been and like the two detectives that are mentioned would have been Robert Forster and, and whoever else. And, uh, but like the guy's like, yeah, somebody came for you. And, um, they said that your credit cards are maxed out and your bank accounts like fucking it. You're broke. Um, and then he gets a call from his secretary. It's like, you gotta meet the cowboy <laughs> up at this ranch or whatever the fuck in the middle of the night. Um, which this is where like the nightmare qualities that you're talking about really come into play for uh -huh, me. Yeah. It feels like one of those scary campfire stories, <laughs> like somebody would tell you a tale about the cowboy that would like come to you if you ever wandered off on your own or some shit. Cause... And the light turns on when he shows up and it turns off when he fades yeah. off. Yeah. And he just walks to the corner of the like 
corral and then the light goes off and he just disappears like, yeah right? i was like holy fuck like where'd he go oh i don't know <laughs> and it gives that, you that creepy, was... if you see me again <laughs> if you do good time. you'll see me one more time if you do bad you'll see me two more times <laughs> that really is some like fucking folklore shit right yeah, there. yeah. <laughs> um that guy was a friend of lynch's and he was just like oh this guy would be great to be the cowboy and he wore his own clothes and That's supposedly amazing. he couldn't memorize his lines to save his life. And they had to like tape his lines to Justin Thoreau so he could <laughs> read them off. Hey man, no shame in that. <laughs> I know they had to do a similar thing for Chevy Chase and uh, Christmas Vacation. So oh, really? <laughs> yeah, when he yeah. gives this whole big uh, monologue at the end, they have like each actor had a note card that they were <laughs> holding that had in big letters what he needed to say. Incredible. <laughs> Um, but yeah, I love that dude. He shows up for just a little bit and I was like, huh, I got chills. Um, and then later you see him a little bit too in the background and that's about it. He just disappears. He's just a ghost of Hollywood, some specter that mm -hmm. wanders. <laughs> and it's like, you yeah. never really know who is ultimately pulling the strings behind this or what's going on, but you have all these shadowy figures. The Italian brothers are so fucking funny. And yep. the, the espresso guy is played by yes. Angelo Badalamenti, who does the score for this and most of Lynch's work. Oh and God. like that scene is so fucking good. Like, you know, this espresso snob that, you know, they are so worried that they're going to get him, you know, a good espresso. And he's like, I love my favorite quote from the movie is, napkin yeah. <laughs> like what did you say napkin <laughs> like, he like drinks the espresso and just spits it all over the napkin and just goes shit <laughs> I, I love how like he he doesn't just like spit it it's not a spit take it's none of that it's a very yeah, slow like a, retching into uh -huh. the yeah. napkin He's like rolling it around in his mouth to test it out and then he said decided it's bad so he won't swallow it and just like yeah, just yeah, coughing it back up. And he like, like he like holds for a really long time on the napkin too. It's like he's waiting for every last drop to get out with his drool. <laughs> <laughs> and the whole time Dan Hadid just looks on and is like, you pick this girl. <laughs> <laughs> this is the girl. <laughs> this is the girl. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, and <laughs> I love the, the other producer guys like, this espresso comes very highly recommended. <laughs> <laughs> we imported it. Yeah. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and then like in that same production company, you have like the little person from Twin Peaks who's just in behind that piece of glass who really doesn't talk. Yeah. And people just walk up to the glass and infer what he means by his silence and then go do it. <laughs> just, yeah. It's so wild. It's yeah. Just, he makes like the one phone call right and he just says mm -hmm. like the girl's still missing and then that's it yep <laughs> and then yeah the other time he's just sitting there and he has like a henchman behind him who doesn't move <laughs> he just stands there in the curtain behind him <laughs> i love like the three yeah the, the phone call chain that he starts where he's like uh, i still haven't found the girl and then the german dude that's taking the call calls somebody else that we never see and it's like this yellow dirty phone illuminated by light mm -hmm. put up to it so they can see the rotary and uh, it, all the German dude says is the same. And then it yeah. just like ends the call. I was like, all right, I guess that's a thing. I have no idea what the fuck's going on. Like, wait a minute. How did the person on that end of the call know that it was the same as the thing that was first said on the other call? Yeah, what yeah. Is... What the fuck? <laughs> that's a meta script moment. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah the, the Also, like the... 
I love the repetition in this too. It adds to the dreamlike quality. There's certain moments where like, obviously Mulholland Drive is an actual drive that uh, two pivotal moments happen at, three pivotal moments, um, technically. Um, and the it's, car wreck, the um, like emergence to the party at the end of the movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and there's a, kind of a... Oh no, I'm not. I'm still thinking of the car wreck. Uh, I was like, there's a, there's like a dreamlike moment. And I was like, which part of the movie is this? It's all of it. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, the car wreck at the beginning too, is definitely there to like grip you. That is that, you know, we found Laura Palmer's body kind of moment. Mm-hmm. Twin Peaks had too, or uh, those kids that are just driving full speed on like a curvy road and smash right into a car, right? As somebody's about to be assassinated, no less. It was like, holy shit. Uh, all of this um, is is like the main major mystery. And I think that that also kind of fucked me up because later um, it like doubles back for the timeline and you, technically it's earlier. Right. And she gets invited to the party and they announce that mm-hmm. Adam is going to be married to Rita. Uh, Camilla. Camilla. <laughs> Sorry. Um, but yeah, like uh, there's that moment. And then I think before that, we see the the it's like right before we start reliving the memories there's like a hard cut that happens with the blue box and the blue key yep that i that has to me there's no physical there's no reality to that at all that that's clearly a film mechanism right i'm not imagining that a blue box can't swallow people whole and <laughs> i don't fucking know man it's david lynch's yeah. world and we're just living in it um it's true i don't know you know like, like toward the end of the movie the like old people get really small and go into the crack in the door. So maybe they could fit to those blue boxes. I don't know. Yeah. They That's come the, out of the blue box, right? When the hobo drops. Yeah. They, they come out of the blue box and oh, they, yeah, they sneak yeah. back and, and haunt. See, I think the, the, I have a theory that the blue box is representative of, of kind of those hopes and dreams of Hollywood and how it swallows you whole. And sometimes it, it like, it can, uh, drag you back to it in a way. Uh, where like you're you're just gonna be crushed in there. It's black and soulless on the inside. No um, Ibanda, John. Yeah. No Ibanda. <laughs> <laughs> but like I know those old people that we see them full size too. Uh, mm-hmm. at the very beginning. They get off the plane. It's just so terrifying. With, with Betty, <laughs> and they're just smiling the most uncomfortable Weird, smile. Yeah. Like that old woman's ride. smile is has to be the most upsetting smile I've ever seen. <laughs> it just just unnerving. Yeah, uh, they did a really good job, like clenching their their teeth and forcing the most upsetting smile, both of them, <laughs> and like laughing a little bit, but not. Uh, mm-hmm. But I feel like they were, I don't know, the these weird representations of like what the positive aspect of Hollywood is. I don't want to say that it's like fully that, but they, as little pe- as like little old people. They run into, uh, they run into, what is her name? What is Betty's name when she's not Betty? Diane. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Sorry. Yeah. They run into Diane's room and they are kind of like freaking her the fuck out. And that's when we get that whole trippy ass scene where the lights are flashing and they're like in her face screaming and Mm -hmm. smiling and laughing and stuff. And I kind of had this vibe that they were sort of demons of guilt <laughs> that were coming to get her. And th- then she commits suicide to like end their reign of terror on her. <laughs> I don't fucking know, but it's just one of those things where I was like, my brain's making connections that I don't really know if right. they're right or not. But, uh, so yeah, that was one of the things that I'm like, having known that, like looking back at the beginning and trying to figure out things on this next watch, they actually are show up in the movie earlier than that. because. Oh. 
on the open that is the jitterbug yes. competition, mm-hmm. which we need to talk about. Like, I don't know how the fifties like blends over in this movie in a weird way. Um, superimposed over it as as like Betty, not Betty, Diane, I guess is winning. Diane is winning the jitterbug contest. You see her for a second, and then you see both the old people like behind her, like excited, and then it goes to just her again. Uh, and then like close out and then we see her later. So I kind of get like, uh, they're like the people back in wherever she is from in Canada that are like, yeah, you're going to be a big, right. Cause that's what they say to her when she gets off the plane of like, yeah, you're going to be this big star. We're going to see you and all that. And then to see, you know, at the end where it's like, you're not, you're not yeah. all that. And you can't go back to those people. Like you can't go back now that you went to Hollywood. Yeah. Come back with your tail between your legs as a failure who, who didn't make it. Yeah. I mean, the, uh, the jitterbug ties into the movie that Adam is making. Apparently, he's making some kind of period right. piece with the doo-wop band and mm-hmm. much other stuff. Um, yeah, that's the weird part is the crossover with that movie is set in that time. Because who has a jitterbug contest? Unless this part of Canada is like just so fucking throwback. They haven't gotten updated. <laughs> They're very rural. <laughs> They're so they out there, yeah. so rural. <laughs> but yeah, like to have a jitterbug contest, I'm sure there are. Like I say that, and I'm like, there probably is some jitterbug world championship. I, I, <laughs> I fully suspect that there is. The international uh, jitterbug competition. <laughs> yeah. But that like she won that jitterbug, and that's somehow how she got the role. Something, something. Yeah, it's that's strange. She just said that led to acting. Uh, but she didn't yeah, really expect. I guess yes. that just meant she would, you know, was wanting to be on stage and in front of people. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's, there's so much going on in this movie. I, I want to get into theories, but I think first, I, I do want to talk about the Silencio Club scene because Club Silencio. Dude, yes, <laughs> I fucking love that that sequence. It's just so. It's so weird. Like it's just like you know, they're uh, Betty and Rita have uh, made love, and uh, you know, a, a very uh, a very beautiful scene. And then uh, you know, Rita wakes up in the middle of the night, like shaking, and uh, you know, she's like, "I need you to, I need you to come out with me, like right now. We need to go somewhere." And they go to this club, Silencio, off of Sunset Boulevard, which is also sort of an influence for this movie, and. You know, they go in there and they they start they walk in kind of as the performance is is happening into this big grand theater and this guy's like there no I banda there is no band there's no orchestra all of this is fake it's just a recording but they have performers continue to come out and that look like they're performing and then prove to you that they're not by you know like a trumpet player who stops playing the trumpet like a singer who drops to the floor as if dead and I I don't know if that's commenting on kind of the vapid emptiness of of Hollywood or the just the concept of movies in general like we are going to a theater to just watch a recording like we're not actually seeing these people perform in front of us it's already happened so it's almost like this this dead thing that you know is it's just there it is what it is and um i don't know i always find that scene so fascinating it's so beautiful too like the music is incredible and um, it, you know, the performances are, are really great in that sequence. Um, and then they just kind of get up and leave unexpectedly. Like Naomi Watts is very upset and is like shaking and like maybe like her reality is kind of breaking at that point. You know, that's she kind of disappears after that. But um, yeah, what did you guys think about that scene? Yeah, I think that scene's great. Like it, it's the culmination of like weirdness at that point, right? Because you kind of get into like 
the storyline, our initial storyline is, has gone somewhere and we've started to, you know, peel away some of the mystery or whatever. And then we have this weird club sequence and then we immediately, you know, the next part is we're off the rails and we get the back half of the movie by half. I mean like quarter, yeah, <laughs> I guess final, most of the movie is the first part. Yeah. Um, and yeah, just the, the music, especially the, the singer, like that song cover is just amazing and powerful. And the cut back and forth between that and, uh, Rita and Betty like crying over it as well or crying over something. Um, and it is just weird. I think the first time I was like, wow, this is super trippy. Now I'm like getting lost in my Ryan thoughts of like, how does this club exist if all they do <laughs> is like do this thing? But then I'm sitting there being like, I've been to some weird ass shit in Los Angeles and New York <laughs> that's exactly like that, where I'm like, they have a packed house every night for something fucking weird that they just come out and say that weird shit. <laughs> no, hay banda. Uh, <laughs> no, hay banda. <laughs> and then they're it open at no 2 a.m. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I, I also like that they walk in, like it's 2 a.m., they get up, they go there, and they walk in right before it starts. Like that. Yep. Mm-hmm. Right at the moment. Yeah, yeah. That's that dream logic, too. You know, yes. you're just in time. You're, you come on on. We're going to, we're going to be doing this. Uh, this, this moment, this scene reminded me kind of of Memoria in a way. Oh, interesting. So there's that, uh, sort of piece, it's pieces to it that are like the audio that you're hearing is fake, but it, it represents something else. It's a facsimile of, uh, performance. And, um, it, it was an, yeah, I was really perplexed by it. I, at this point was fully into like, okay, I'll just let this happen. Um, I didn't know that it, if it represented anything vapid or if it was just Lynch really wanted to conjure this kind of dream where there's almost a real life dubbing of things happening Uh um, for the purpose of picking apart like, hey, this is actually how you deconstruct these things or uh, what you would see in any play, too, is like you're hearing sounds that are rehearsed. Uh, Maybe no Ibanda is sort of this. approach to spontaneity and like performing usually when you're performing something i think about like singing and you can do like scatting at times and like mm-hmm. that's improvised but with a recording you're you're on the rails constantly you're like forced into this particular pattern um to have a club where everything is predictable and that the the ultimate end is that you're like i wasn't playing all along even though everybody else is in on it uh i, I can't make heads or tails of what that really means um but it to me, it resonated kind of with the, the rest of the movie in being like, hey, you're going to like watch this again. And it's going to be like in these scenes, think about it without the sound. Think about it with this different layer of understanding that uh, maybe you don't have the same logic that you think you do. That kind of thing. That's sort of what it said to me. Um, hmm. Still really yeah, vague, I think, but. <laughs> I think a lot of the stuff that Lynch does kind of have that double meaning of whatever within the specific movie or show kind of like what is that representing to that but then can also have this peel out further out view of like what is that representation so yeah i think for the direct like character relationships it's this world that they've been in if it's diane's head or dream or whatever isn't real in some way or it's predicted or you know whatever but then at the same time, that being a stage play, right, where it's like this 
powerful performances that are fake or inauthentic in a way. Um, yeah, kind of speaks to the larger themes that we see here. Kind of in the same, we have all the things about casting, right? Of like how somebody gets cast or how a movie gets made. And was it mm -hmm. really their skill or was it this mysterious people behind the scenes who made the decision, you know, without any involvement? Um, which then is like also a reflection on Hollywood, right? On a broader sense. So you kind of get both the macro, micro views on a lot of these dreamlike things. Yeah. That's another scene that we should definitely talk about the um the rehearsal sequence where I love the the incredible yeah. contrast there when uh Betty is rehearsing the lines with Rita and then when she goes and does the rehearsal with that creepy old dude and it's just it's amazing like I think it's it's really interesting from an acting standpoint to see how you can take a script and act it one way and act it a completely different way with the same scene, the same words. And also from a directing standpoint, how you can create an entirely different tone with how you block the scene and the way you can kind of create tension and discomfort or um, kind of a, a lightness to like the first example where she's doing it with, with Rita and, and kind of a more lighthearted way. But um, what, what did you guys think of, of that sequence? Yeah, I, I enjoyed I enjoy any time that I get to see like the meta Hollywood style, like it gives a good um, chance for a director to make this kind of demonstration. And I want to say that like every movie that has this sort of thing, you think about um, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which has uh, it takes like a Western serial and it makes it into a modern movie in the middle when they shoot like a Lancer episode. Mm -hmm. And it shows you what those old Westerns on TV would look like if you actually put like modern production value into them and how like fucking cool they could be. And I feel like that's another aspect that this had where I've, I've rehearsed lines with friends in, in LA and like, they're always, they're, I think that Lynch captures that levity, that kind of personability in between friends when, uh, you're saying the lines and you're kind of carrying some of the weight, but not all of it. And you're like really more just trying to get down in your head, like what you're saying. I think that it also works to um, Betty and, and Rita's relationship showing how even though they really don't know who like Rita is, Rita still like somebody kind and caring who can help Betty with whatever she needs. And they're there for each other. And then the moment that you get into that scene with the creepy dude uh, where it's like, this is OK, this is the other side of Hollywood. Um, but Betty just starts acting the fuck out of it. And Naomi <laughs> Watts is crushing it. And it's like pulling you in. As much as the old dude is like pushing you away, uh, it's so gripping and it, uh, I, I fucking loved it. Sasha the entire time was like, ew, no, ew, don't like this guy. But she <laughs> yeah. also was like, oh my God, like, uh, Naomi, Naomi Watts did a great job with this. Oh God, uh, gross. <laughs> um, and I, I think that like this movie has an interesting mix of what feels like scathing parts of Hollywood, like Lynch just sort of ripping into these darker sides of it. And exposing it and then other parts that show kind of the beauty and like the wonder within the craft. Um, and I, I, I think that the rehearsals on both sides are kind of the two sides of the coin the, that look at like, here's the fun and joy and like the, uh, the kind of validation that it brings to actors. And then here's the other part with the fucking creepy old dude that wants to play it close. And just mm -hmm. like, oh God, it's uh, Jimmy Stewart rubbing his face all over Kim Novak yeah. again. Yeah. Just, uh, Except worse. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think it's interesting too that Betty, and, and when we see her practicing the lines to begin with, she just has this naivete, how do you say it? Naivete. Uh, naivete 
about everything, right? And and Naomi Watts plays this really great light kind of seeing the wonder of everything that Betty is. Um, that then suddenly it really is like a hard transition in that scene for, you know, you as a viewer where you're like, whoa, is this the same Betty? Like, this is so different. And the words that are in the script are now recontextualized because mm-hmm. of the, the way that they're saying and how it's together. Um, I do like that that's then immediately followed up with as she leaves the uh, the other people like crapping on it. Like yeah, they're all like, oh, it's a great performance. And they walk out and I was like, that movie's going to suck. You don't want to be in that. That's going to be bullshit. They're like, right? they won't even like, get that made. Like they know yeah, what's going on happen. behind the scenes. Like, there's no way they'll get that finance. It's like, nah, yep. don't worry about that. We'll take you to an audition that you, yeah, you we'll go actually, to something good. You could maybe do. Um, yeah. And yeah, having the, the like Hollywoodness of something that could be really good and a role that she really deserved that is fizzling out, not going anywhere. Um, and then this other one that's like, yeah, it's somebody said you're supposed to get this role and that's how it works. Or that's, you know, or the, how, how do the financing works to get something made? Like all of that, um, also encapsulated in there. And I think that combined with then the, like Naomi Watts in the last chunk of the movie, like you really get this range that she has, which is amazing. This is an, yeah. And, and to think that she was on. You know, again, this is the weird meta-ness of this movie that she was in a failed pilot, right? That mm-hmm. it was like, yeah. here's my role, here's my shot. You know, I get to work on this thing. It should be everything should be great. I had these awesome scenes. David Lynch is making it. Twin Peaks was like the hottest fucking thing ever. Uh, and then it's like, nah, we don't want it <laughs> for for arbitrary reasons, possibly, mm-hmm. probably. Uh, to then later be like, oh, we need you back. We're gonna film some more scenes and actually put the thing out. <laughs> You're going to film some scenes where you masturbate and uh, you have, you know, get topless and make out with your female co-star. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I wonder what scenes were added to kind of like finish up the like to finish up the threads or to add the tension or whatever. I, I'm not, it's not definitely a, all the sex stuff would have been later because it was a TV pilot at first. So, yeah, not that yeah. level of. Yeah, no way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's for sure. That got added. Well, and I for was like reading up on it. I guess the sets were all destroyed and all the clothes, all the everything was like given away. And so there was I was like anything that's on the same set has to be from either the first filming or the second filming. There's no way they crossed over those unless they did like a good set rebuild. The whole budget for this thing is amazing, too, because it's a TV pilot. It was like eight million. And then they kind of doubled it to finish out. It was just like not a lot for that no, time yeah. like and and that it you know it's good you know like it 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 works it works as a movie it's in a weird aspect ratio for a movie but um like it's shot in 185 it, to to one that's pretty standard well when they showed it in the theaters they had to like adjust it because otherwise their heads would get clipped because it'd been filmed in oh really uh yeah huh. it's, it's like a different i'm trying to remember what the ratio ends was but and it's like adjusted over like DVD releases. Yeah, the, and the all Criterion Blu rays is in 185 the whole time. So yeah, I, I think they uh, like f- have adjusted it since, but I, th- I think have. it was pretty much like TV aspect ratio. And mm-hmm. then it was like, we've got to film the other part that way and just make it all one cohesive thing and film on the same kind of cameras and everything too. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they put it out, and Lynch had to like, he, he had like a letter that he sent with all of the prints to be like, Hey, you need to do it this way or it's going to fuck up on the screen. If you do it, if you center it the normal way. <laughs> That's wild. 
Um, yeah, Naomi Watts is is so incredible in this. Like one of my favorite performances. Just it's it's a it's amazing how she can go from bright eyed soap opera to like dark down in the dump suicidal kind of going crazy and and kind of everything in between there and it's just it's just wild to see that transformation th- throughout the movie um I, I also think the the cinematography is really interesting in this because it's not like it like it's kind of soft focus because I, I feel like it's trying to get that soapy feel to it and so it's not as crisp as as you would think the picture might be but it looks great and it's like it's the right decision and it adds that dreamy atmosphere to it where um you know everything it it almost seems like outside of a time period because of that and it's just like it it looks really cool the way the way they shot it i feel like some of the cinematography too it it goes between being very clean in composition and very messy and muddled Mm -hmm. with like an intention like i think about club silencio has that um person that's sitting up in the the balcony box the blue hair Simpson. Yeah. March has yeah. March Simpson sitting there, um, <laughs> overseeing everything. And like, I remember they show some shots from like the, the basically the orchestra seating and like looking up, but it's not separating the actual announcer from that looming character. They're like superimposed. He's superimposed over her in the way that the shot is lined up. It's one of those things where like you notice it because a lot of the other framing is so cleanly done. Um, and there's just moments where you can feel like an intentional, like, no, we, we need to like really smush these characters together or like muddle this part of the scene. It has to feel a little bit more dirty and like, um, uh, less well-kempt, um, just because that goes with like the dream logic, I think in a way, and that subconscious something's off about this sequence here. Yeah. Yeah. There's a few shots where we kind of get from someone's perspective, and you kind of get the like shakiness of someone walking. Um, they kind of add to that same thing where you kind of feel the same like dream likeness of you dreaming it, I guess, of like trying to figure out what's going on. There's um, that weird shaky floaty cam they do in the Winkies scene that just makes yeah. you feel very uneasy. Yeah. They do like an yep. evil dead shot into Club Silencio. <laughs> like yeah, the, shaky the camera zoom. picks True. up yeah, and starts go to go. I was like, oh, <laughs> okay. Yeah. And then there's the like coming in and out of the zoom really in the last part of the movie. But there is one at the beginning where they like use the zoom to like come in and out of perspective. Um, mostly for Naomi Watts's masturbation scene. But yeah. there are a couple <laughs> things towards the end where it's kind of like her, I guess, like her reality like kind of blending losing it in the very beginning of the movie kind of the the switch between the dance and the Mulholland Drive there's a little bit of that too where it kind of comes in and out of focus quickly yeah so yeah. even using those little bits those little tricks just adds to that like okay what you know this is what you talked about with Wong Kar Wai like why now are we suddenly in a different FPS like what happened um trying to figure out how they're using that yeah um Anything else you guys want to talk about before we get into theories on what the hell this movie is saying? <laughs> no, I don't think there's anything else other than I love the dude who has the dream that that actor. Um, yeah, it's mm-hmm. like I can't remember what his name I is. I just call him the Winkies guy. Like whenever I see him, in <laughs> Patrick <stuff>. Fischler, Patrick <laughs> Fischler is his name. Uh, Patrick Fischler is great. I've seen him in a few other things. He's always kind of a, a weird dude. 
Mm-hmm. Um, he plays a, a Don Rickles esque comedian in Mad Men who like roasts the owner of a pretzel company's wife, uh, and then <laughs> has to apologize over dinner and he doubles down on it. It's just a great episode. <laughs> it's great comedy in Mad Men. <laughs> so yeah, when I saw him, I was like, Hey, it's that guy. I love him. <laughs> I yeah. want to hear. And then it started talking about that fucked up dream. And I was like, Oh shit, this guy has range. <laughs> Holy fuck. <laughs> so yeah. Uh, yeah. Shout out to that guy. <laughs> yeah. No, that guy's awesome. Now um, let's just, let's dig into theories. Like let's do it. And I think we've like talked around the movie. Yeah. <laughs> enough. <laughs> R- Ryan, what do you, what do you got? Yeah, I think kind of what I thought the first time, and I I think I still kind of have the sense now of the Diane is our main character, and we see Betty for the most part, or Diane. We follow them. There are these weird asides where at the beginning of the movie you see other scenes that that person shouldn't like know or be in. Um, well, Justin Theroux's gotta... whole plot is separate, really, from Cor- right. Betty Diane until it ties in kind of in the third act. Yeah. But it, it, that fits into my theory a bit of so D- Diane in either the last seconds before she's fully dead or sometime somewhere in some crazy vision is recontextualizing kind of her life and seeing herself as Betty instead of Diane. And I think then she's like, the reason Adam has such shitty everything is because she's seeing like, okay, I want to make it as bad as possible for him. I fucking pissed at him. So that's like all the crap shows up and she does take in. Cause he makes a mention at the end of like, he got the pool and his wife got the pool boy. So like there is some reality to that having happened. Um, but I think also that she's like, he doesn't have agency in his decisions anyway. Right. Cause he ended up mm-hmm. casting her differently than she would have wanted to be cast. Um, she kind of changes the role of like how her relationship with Camilla is in the way that she has Rita as this like, you know, malleable, perfect, Thing that has no history and is just there for me, um, you know, and I can work through her life and that kind of stuff. Um, and then it's like, as those things happen, kind of like eventually we get to the box, it kind of is just like her kind of coming back to the realness of everything. Like the box is the change to so like, okay, now it's we're back to how it really is. And then I think it's just a, like a lot of a, you know, you kind of just matter the peanut butter over all of it of the like disillusionment with Hollywood and like how do roles get given out. And like, she sees herself as having the, being this awesome actress that absolutely deserved what she was in. Right. She kind of also like plays herself up. And I think those other scenes that are like unrelated are her like contextualizing different things and how they got there. Right. So like the hitman that she actually hires, she sees him somewhat as this bumbling version of himself. And he's getting this, like, you know, black book that Hollywood needs, right, of something awesome. And they're they're searching for people who are missing, and they're trying to do these hits on them. And, and I also think that as, like, that beginning open with Don Mullen Drive is her, like, wishing Camilla was, like, shot and hit by a car, yeah. <laughs> I guess, or uh. something. <laughs> um, and then, yeah, there's just these, like, mirrors, these parallels, like you're talking about, with, like, the waitress is Betty, is Betty in one, and Diane in the other, and the names are flipped. Uh, Camilla Rita, like, weirdly walks down the hill on Mulholland Drive, kind of in both of them in this weird way. 
Um, yeah, I mean, you kind of go on. There's like all just all these weird like doublings. Yeah, I think that that's basically my interpretation as well. And I think it's also Diane is kind of trying to justify why she hasn't gotten the career that she thinks she should have because yeah. well there's just all these shadowy figures in the background you know these people that run hollywood that are making all these decisions that you know it's not it doesn't matter how good i am as as an actor like there's a creepy guy behind a glass case that is making all the decisions and a weird ghost cowboy who gets to go and act <laughs> vengeance upon people for not like following up on those to, you know decisions and making those come true and um yeah, I, I think it's like this, you know, the first two acts are like this, you know, masturbatory fever dream that she is having. And, you know, as it's like, but she can't even hold the the fantasy and it starts to break down toward the end. And like when she's like shaking in the Silencio Club, it's yeah. like, OK, she can't even keep this fantasy going anymore. And reality is coming to smack her in the side of the head and she has to deal with everything as it actually is and then you see all of these characters from the first two acts recontextualize in different places and you're like oh, okay i see i see how that's related to how they were in the first part of the movie and what she has done in her mind to kind of try to try to help her feel okay with her own failure you know and to come to terms with it yeah i i have my theories are very very scattered right now because i'm still on first watch so obviously <laughs> yeah. can't parse as hard into it i saw you know that there is that i kind of talked about the old people being this representative of like the guilt that just follows you into hollywood and i feel like it, it's something that like betty and diane are you know two sides of the same coin obviously for me that uh, I picked up on that piece, the cowboy being kind of representative of old Hollywood in a way, um, like the mm. classic Westerns and like the way things are usually done and how there's a rigid structure and hierarchy of power that makes sure that you fucking stay on track or they ruin your career. Um, like, hey, uh, you know, that that reminds me, you know, David Lynch directed Dune, not necessarily by choice because they took it from uh, Yodorowsky. Uh, but it's just one of those things where Yodorowsky got a little took it too away big from Richard. Lynch, really. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So <laughs> it's just like, all right, um, you know, there's there's some random dude out there who's the fixer, basically, for Hollywood, who actively fucks up a lot of creative visions and <laughs> the artist's voice. But yeah, I can also see like that kind of vengeful end of life fantasy, um, especially because Club Silencio it is like that's what death is is silence like after mm -hmm. a certain point you detach from what you thought reality was and you enter this other phase and uh betty sitting there and like just shaking violently um kind of the death rattle of her actual uh kind of metaphysical spirit in this club mm -hmm. um and that disillusionment of 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 reality makes perfect sense to me uh beyond that i I still can't make heads or tails of like a lot of where things fit in, like why, uh, why that whole diner sequence about the dream has something to do with everything else potentially other than, you know, why does this hobo behind a wall have the blue box that has the old people in it? Um, if he scared this other guy to death, is it representative of like the changing force of death in some way or the, the kind of thing that comes for you when you're, looking for it in a way um i i can't tell uh that's when it 
crosses that fog, that barrier, um, where I just, it, the surrealism of Lynch is hard to penetrate. But yeah, I definitely, all the shadowy figures, everything else that y'all have said is convincing to me. I still think that there's more that I want to go back and like try to figure out. I don't have too many other parts of my theory um, beyond like the pieces I've picked apart here. So yeah, yeah and I, mean, I don't know that it's really possible to be able to put together a single right. cohesive yes. idea of here's exactly. where everything is and where it's supposed to go right some of the yep. stuff just it's there because it was a tv pilot and it would have been something else later and now it's in the movie and you know we have to kind of figure out where it goes and maybe it doesn't all fit together in the most perfectly neat way but it does all fit together in an incredibly beautiful way that you know just it's a fantastic movie altogether. And, it, and like, yeah, some things maybe don't come around the way that they maybe would if this was kind of all designed as one movie from the start. But I just love every scene of this movie. And like, I don't really care if like not all the pieces fit perfectly. Yeah. I mean, yeah. everything is thematically matched, right? Yes. Or thematically uh -huh. or feeling matched, even if it doesn't make exact or perfect sense where it falls. And I have the feeling that there are things in the, in all of Lynch's stuff where he's just like, well, I want this. Like, I want two people talking about a dream because it's important to the dreaminess of, like, people mm -hmm. sleeping in this movie and waking up and whatnot. But, well, who are these two people? <laughs> I, yeah. I, I was going to say, I, I get a lot of uh, in... Who was the fucking Scarlett Johansson and whatever? Asteroid City. Oh, Asteroid City. Uh, when they're, like, going through the back... And they're like talking about the alien. He's like, I don't, I don't know. We haven't figured out what the aliens like thing is, right? Yeah. We don't know <laughs> what the there is that or... where it's like, I need this, but yeah. I don't know what the thing is. I just need the, it, it's there for the plot or whatever, for the feeling that it gets. So yeah. yeah. And I think the diner, it's like, again, it's interesting that it's the same seat that Diane and the hitmen are at, hitman are at, and we have the same waitress and her name switch or whatever. So there's definitely like a, it's related somehow in the minds that those two things are similar. Um, and then, yeah, that that weird bum or whatever is back there talking about the like being in the dream. But then there's this other thing that's like kind of pulls you out of it and is horrible that you don't want to face when you wake up. And definitely like Diane doesn't want to face her world when she wakes up. So it's like thematically it all matches. But, like, mm. what exactly is it? Mm. And and then it's like the same, the hitman in the first version, he's like outside that Winky's like asking a hooker about uh, potentially if she's seen Rita, I guess. Like, again, that's just like something is there like melding together in your mind, but it's not exactly like it makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. And I think and I don't know my my best interpretation of like the Winkies and the box and the key and and all of that is that you know so like Rita finds the key and opens opens the or she has the key already right in the box she, she kind the of key appears she, in her purse she has a shit yeah. ton of money and a key in her mm. purse and the box mm. just kind of shows up and she the box opens, is in Nao in uh, Naomi Watts's purse after the Silencio club. right club it just appears there after it's that just in there yeah. And so they open it up and then you go dive into the box and you appear into the third act of the film. You kind of wake up from this fantasy and go into like a reality, we'll call it as, you know, she's Diane now in, instead of Betty. And so it feels like that's un unlocking kind of her uh, fears and, and guilt and, you know, kind of waking up 
her up to the the present that she's having to deal with and the you know the key the blue key like the hitman is like you'll find this when the job is done right like he tells her that at Mm -hmm. the uh diner and then i believe we see that blue key again on her coffee table yes later right when her neighbor comes over to get something yeah to get her shit because she swapped apartments with her yeah so in in theory the assassination happened or maybe it was botched in a hilarious way (laughs) Um, probably yeah but but uh you know, and then like, you know, when when she's at the uh, when she's at the wink, he's talking to him like, you know, the hobo has the box in the in the back and the old people come out of it. So like, we kind of talked about like, you know, the old people or maybe their parental figures or people from her hometown that are, you know, ex- making her feel guilty, exerting this pressure on her that are motivating her to do this horrible thing. Right. The guilt that she is feeling. And in the earlier Winky's sequence with the Winkies guy talking about his dream. He's like, I felt like there was this evil presence in the back of the Winkies that was doing it all, like uh, making everything happen. And so I, I view that as like, that's uh, Diane's driving motivation, like being represented by the, the old people running out of the, out from behind the Winkies basically. Um, but I don't know. It's like, it's tough to put this all together. I think it's fascinating to, discuss and to watch it and to think about different ways that this could all kind of come together but like even you know we're talking about the final act as if it's the you know kind of reality portion of the movie but it's still fucking weird and dreamlike and wild and like you know it, it's hard to say what really is going on i was gonna say it's unclear to me that like after the box drops we get this one aside where aunt ruth like looks in the room and the box isn't there and then we right. fade back to the room in the current i'm like I have no fucking clue what the deal is with Aunt Ruth through any of That's this. Some Twilight that, Zone that one shit. I <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that was like a reset in a way where it was like, none of this happened. And there we go. Aunt Ruth, whatever. Um, Except she's dead later. So I don't. Yeah. You know, so uh, sure. Uh, she, she left something, but. Um, yeah, that's where like, you know, earlier I was like, well, you know, all of the stuff that y'all sa- said sounds, you know, convincing enough. And it's one of those things where like, yeah, I'm not going to be able to resolve all of it. I won't be able to know what's happening where. And that's why circling back to the very beginning, I had said like Lynch feels like, like the right kind of, um, logical, I guess, conflict for me. He's, he's the immovable object to, uh, my unstoppable force of my cognition and my desire to, (laughs) to logically piece shit together. Like I really can't, um, overwhelm him with my logic. He instead wins out. Uh, and, and I'm forced to just like accept it and be fine with, you know, what I'm able to parse at any one given time. And I think it's really, really beautiful. You can approach this movie and like apply a lens this way and try to apply a different lens this way. And like, no matter what you do, you'll never be able to reconcile every question within any one of those theories. And it's, um, it's really fucking great because it gets you thinking like way more about, other things like it gets you prepped to think about other Lynch movies or any other movie that comes after it. Mm-hmm. Um, you can, you can try to have that same level of engagement with it. So it's fascinating how his movies, they're not intellectual, right? They're very emotional and tonal and subconscious in, in what they're doing, but they inspire such an intellectual response. You're like, I have to figure it out. I have to solve the puzzle. Mm-hmm. And then eventually you just have to kind of give up and be like, I just have to enjoy this on an emotional level and on a subconscious level and a dreamlike level and appreciate the artistry behind it and the music and the acting and all these things and, and the, and the writing and the directing. But like, you can't, 
you know, his movies are, are not supposed to be solved. And I think it, like, you have to kind of come to terms with that and to, you know, be, be okay with uh, just enjoying the movie for what it is. Yeah. I think that's, what's good about like truly good surreal pieces. Um, like Kafka's metamorphosis. If you spend time thinking about like, how did he turn <laughs> into a bug? Like you're not, you're it's not important. That's not the right thing to be thinking about, right? Right. Yeah, you're missing the metaphor if you're, yeah, trying to figure out how you got there. Like, how does this actually work? How did this actually happen? Yeah, or any of you know Yodorowsky, like hell, the entire journey of El Topo, Dude, all of Yodorowsky, <laughs> yeah, yeah, Holy Mountain, any of that. We talked about that, right? That's another like you get a bunch of feelings and you get a bunch of symbolism, and it's kind of all stirred up, but it doesn't really coherently make any sense or anything. Yeah, where I know um, it's not like a harsh opinion, but this is something like compared to like a Darren Aronofsky film um, where the subtext is pretty clear out in the forefront and the surrealism slowly kind of fades away to give way to like an allegory or a metaphor that Mm. is way more just like, okay, like I still haven't seen Mother, but I've heard that that's kind of a complaint is just it's got the surreal elements to it, but it's allegorical in nature. And Aronofsky is pretty on the nose about a lot of what he tries to do in his films. Um, so it kind of like reveals itself underneath a few layers and it doesn't cause you to continue to think about it past a certain point. Um, yeah. They're like surreal, but it's obvious what's what it is. Like he usually yeah, reveals yeah. it to you like, Oh, well they were on drugs or <laughs> like <laughs> this was imaginary. Yeah. Yeah. I really like Mother, but it's, yeah, I understand why people don't, but I, I kind of interpret it differently than, than a lot of people do, I think. But it's, it, yeah, it's fucking wild. <laughs> yeah. Uh, cool. Um, well, any, any parting thoughts here before we get into uh, recommending or not recommending? The coffee was a good choice. Coffee pairing with this podcast. Yeah. It's pretty nice. Coffee, yeah. Gotta say, David Lynch is on to something. Coffee is good. <laughs> didn't it have any uh, bourbon or anything in it? Uh, there was uh, fish in the percolator. So, no. <laughs> oh, all right. Dropping random Twin Peaks <laughs> references. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Ryan, would you recommend this movie? Yeah, I would recommend it. Um, I like kind of all the Lynch stuff that I've seen. They're different flavors and which there's also like which ones are approachable. And I actually think Mulholland drive is pretty approachable because I think it really draws you in at the beginning mm-hmm. with the kind of like noir S mystery um, enough that by the time it starts to get a little weird, you're kind of okay. And you're still in the mystery before you're kind of like, Oh wait, this is nothing else entirely. Um, and it, yeah, like it's, it's up there for for me on that and i just i i kind of recommend like all of lynch's stuff i agree take it in like bites like give yourself some time between (laughs) each of them um but yeah and it's interesting too so i would say like with him people going back now and looking at things previously um like fire walk with me or later stuff in uh twin peaks and being like well now that i'm okay with just not trying to make sense of it this is pretty good again now that i think about it like mm. yeah yeah interesting so where do you of the lynch that you've seen where does this fall for you um i it's pretty much it's like this blue velvet and eraser head are all good in kind of different ways eraser head is so rough 
though. Like, and that that's interesting for what that is. Um, again, I think this one's pretty approachable and really watchable. Like, it's it baffles me that it is a TV pilot <laughs> um, that just got expanded. That it that it is this good, um, and the fact that like from a you know you're not getting any like expensive sets or like a lot of it happens in kind of a few places. You're not getting crazy like shot camera shots or anything dynamic um, because that all costs money. <laughs> and so everything <laughs> is kind of kept smallish scale, but I think really works for it as well. Um, yeah. And I, you know, LA Hollywood, like all that I think plays well. And I tend to like noirish things. So this one is yeah. probably the, the top for me. I think like twin Pike peaks, like all of it is really interesting, but it's just too much to get through all of it to get any right like yeah i just made up his feature films but yeah yeah of films like i i think this is this is probably so i could probably go back and forth but i'm like those are the those are the three i think of yeah nice john would you recommend this yeah i'd recommend this um yeah david lynch really helps me uh, i think for experiencing the rest of film it's pretty rad uh to to take this and then go see something else um obviously i think that it'll work in pairing with other surreal uh films or like i said slow cinema i don't think that watching david lynch is going to make me appreciate like armageddon more than i do right now <laughs> which is not very much <laughs> um but armageddon was in criterion at one point so it was <laughs> that's a that's a dark period we don't talk about <laughs> um yeah i would recommend it uh and in terms of like where it sits on my list because i only have currently three which is dune Eraserhead, and this um it's, was at it's least sitting pretty second. high up, <laughs> pretty high up uh, but also i feel like in a lynchian way I, i'm not allowed to have a list it should be more of a random assortment of dots on like a piece <laughs> of paper and i don't know how to make sense of where they sit but i like it so <laughs> nice yeah uh, i would obviously recommend this movie um one thing we hadn't talked about is the score angelo Badalamenti is so good in all of his yeah. collaborations with lynch but his the score in this is so good. It's like this, uh, you know, unnerving synth horror jazzy thing that just kind of like drives you along, and it's just so it it it's so good. Uh, that opening scene of them driving down the road with that score playing is so good to just kind of set the scene for the film. Uh, but I also love kind of the genre crossover that this is. It's so many things. It's like a noir thriller horror soap comedy. Like there's just so much fucking happening and um yeah this this movie's great um i did a lynch ranking on letterboxd and i like i don't it's so hard for me with the top three i have Eraserhead, inland empire and mulholland drive and it's really hard for me to decide between those they're all so fucking good and just incredible uh pieces of cinema got to my head i would probably put this third but um like it's razor thin between those three at the top but more people should watch Inland Empire. I feel like that one is kind of yeah, not really that. thought of as much anymore, you know, as the, one of the big, great Lynch works. And it's like fucking incredible. Love Laura Dern. So, yeah, I'm down. And David Lynch sat outside of a studio with a cow and a billboard that said Laura Dern for your consideration around the Oscars. So, you know, <laughs> that's pretty cool. <laughs> fucking A. Way to go, David Lynch. <laughs> Cool. Uh, well, thank you guys for listening to this episode. I think that brings us to a close. I have been your host, Michael Dixon, with me as always. Yeah, yeah. Here I'm sitting at the metal server. I'm like, I'm not.
That's her from Nikki Batson. And John Garcia, the hottest club in LA is Club Silencio. Go check it out, folks. <laughs> no I Banda. TV Tufts, and all listeners in between. John here from the Afterthoughts Podcast. I just wanted to drop in at the end of this episode and say thanks for listening. If you've got afterthoughts of your own to share, hit us up. You can find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at The Afterpod, or jump into a conversation on our Discord server. You can find info for this and more at theafterpod.transistor.fm. Thanks again for listening, and we'll catch you on the next episode.